Joining us now, our friend somewhere in hot Heartland, Minnesota, Al Bad. Hey, Al, how you doing? I'm enjoying a nice uh, hot cup of tea, hoping oh, that'll cool me, cool me <laughs> off a little bit. Oh, dear. I, uh, I'm one of those guys that drinks hot stuff when it's hot and cold stuff when it's cold. When, it, when it's really cold, nothing sounds better than an ice cream cone or something like that. So <laughs> it's, it is, we were in uh, Mankato on Saturday watching baseball games and Everybody was telling me it was 102 then, and somebody sent me a photo of their thermometer in the shade, which was 101 point something or another. We were uh, sitting out there in in one of those uh, bag chairs watching the games, and it's been... I'm a good Minnesotan. I say, well, it's been worse, <laughs> but oh, that was hot. And I, uh, folks, I'm a good Minnesotan. I like it cool. I remember working up in Anchorage, Alaska, and we're uh, stuffing bags in a tour bus. And uh, the guy that was working with the hotel had moved there from Arkansas. And he was sweating like crazy, and he said, I did not move to Alaska <laughs> to sweat because it was on one of the record hot days oh, dear. in uh, in Anchorage. And uh, they just, but they get a little bit of that. Get up Fairbanks, it gets pretty hot, but he did not. He liked it, you know, for the most part, Anchorage gets that nice breeze off the ocean and everything, so it kind of keeps it cool, moderates the temperature, but... Oh, that day it was hot. and I don't know that I've ever, you know, I've played a lot of basketball. I've seen people sweat uh, oceans. <laughs> I don't know that I ever saw anybody sweat as much as that gentleman did that day. It was just running off him, uh, dripping off from his, you know, men, I don't know, women. You, you glisten. Know, glisten. Or, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Something don't. like that. But men, it, it runs down the nose and then like it's on a the <laughs> drop of sweat like it's on a diving board before it goes and it's hard not to watch that i'm supposed to be stuffing bags in there but i'm watching to see how long the little drop of sweat would hang on his nose so, oh dear <laughs> yeah he a good guy but he had a, a sweating problem oh i listened to a brown thresher this morning and boy for me that puts the world in tune it has a long-winded song and uh, that we give mnemonics to everything so we can remember it. But there's no way I can ever remember this, so I had to write it down. He was singing, plant a seed, and the brown thrasher repeats everything he says, like guys my age do. He said, plant a seed, plant a seed, bury it, bury it, cover it up, cover it up, let it grow, let it grow, pull it up, pull it up, eat it, eat it, hello, <laughs> hello, yes, 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 who is this, who is this? Well, 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 I should say, I should say, how's that, how's that? I don't know, I don't know. What'd you say, what did you say? Certainly, certainly, well, 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 not that I know of, not that I know of. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I guess so, I guess so. All right, all right, goodbye, goodbye. And then he flew away, so I didn't get to hear the rest of it. But <laughs> Quite a conversation, very, or monologue. It, He's very talkative, and uh, for folks that visit down south, you run into mockingbirds, and they're amazing creatures. But we have the brown thrasher and the catbird, and they are both uh, every bit of as amazing to me anyway. Uh, I gather sticks. Every time it blows, we have some birch trees like river birch and all those little 
tiny, you know, I can't even call them a branch. They're almost like twigs come down, but they are mini branches, and they just fall, so I'm out there gathering them. And I watched a Baltimore Oriole build a nest, and what a what a divertisement that was. An Oriole takes up to 12 days to weave a nest. Most are completed within a week. And I immediately filled the grape jelly feeder again because the Oriole has a sweet beak, and it was fun. It gave me entertainment while I was doing that. And those little river birch branch twig things, I wear sandals and open-toed, of course. Oh. Those little things find a way to get in under my toes. It's it's amazing how good they are at doing that as I walk around. Do you know what else they do? I was out in the garden this morning watering my hostas early this morning, and those little there's a, a birch tree, and they actually impale through the hosta leaves. They must come down, and they just boom. So... Yeah, that's what that's something else. I swear they they play target with my hostas, and I picked up so many this morning because we had such such strong winds lately too. Yep. So uh, yes, I I know the same issue with birch, and I wonder why are there all those dead twigs anyway? Is what I want to know. I uh, apparently a birch just puts out way more than it needs. I guess and gives them up easily. I I don't understand it either. I I, I asked the tree. I said, why do you do this? Stop it! I just. <laughs> Because I, I expect to look up one day and see nothing except the major limbs up there. Everything else will be stripped, but it it seems to be as robust as ever. So I don't know why it does that. Oh, folks, when you're driving around, take a look at goat's beard now. I, oh, it's I, beautiful. When I was a kid, we called it salsify. Oh. And it's probably found in every county in Minnesota. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Its blossom and seed head are similar to a dandelion, but much larger. And it's probably gets up to maybe three foot tall flowering stems. And they're seen in grassy areas along roadside ditches. So it's it's a fun plant just to see. Verna uh, Hoppe said, we moved in March after living in North Branch for 25 years. And Verna, I'm not sure where Verna moved, but she said, I fed grape jelly to Orioles all those years. There are no Orioles where we are now. I miss them. My neighbor who also feeds Orioles said she has only two pairs where she used to have dozens of them. What happened to the Orioles? I can't say exactly why there's a dearth of Orioles there, uh, Verna, a change in local habitat maybe. According to the North American Breeding Bird Survey, the official partners in flight survey, uh, and I think there's probably some others in there, show a loss of 3% each year in the Baltimore Oriole population. So this accumulates to a loss of 24% from the year 1966 to 2000, so sadly. Um, this would be something uh, right up TJ's alley. Jerry Victoria of Allendale sent me a photo of garter snakes, uh, a ball of garter snakes. My dad always said, oh, don't do that. That's a ball of snakes. You don't want to get involved in that. Well, garter snakes spend the winter in brumation. Brumation? Sort of a, huh. I've yep, never heard sort of. that word. I thought, it, what is that? Is that like hibernation but not? It is. It's the analog of mammalian hibernation, so it's sort of a torpor, and it's oh. for cold-blooded snakes, and they have this communal hibernacula in rocks or below ground. And in the spring, the males leave the hibernacula, and it takes them days to become active and coordinated. And 
about two weeks later when a female emerges and she emits a sex pheromone, they rush to her to mate. But if several to many males converge on a single female, this mating ball is formed. It's like an athletic competition to push other males aside and to move, maneuver into the right spot. So um, Jerry was out um, walking around in his place, his rural place there, and saw this, and it was a big ball of snakes. He also saw a snapping turtle at the end of his driveway and cedar wax wings in his yard. We were talking about what eats uh, grape jelly last uh, week, and Miss Lona said, sent me a video of a raccoon eating grape jelly. Yeah, and raccoons love grape jelly and everything else. Uh, they will eat. I watch them out here. They're happy to eat bird seed just like deer are. And Lona also sent me a photo of a big spider. It looks like a nursery web spider to me. Uh, Donna and Dwayne Swenson of Wasika, a wood duck with 15 ducklings on their pond. Uh, Dave Horning of Glenville called and he had a black-billed cuckoo fly into his window and die, sadly. Uh, Yuri Justin of Allendale said, pulled into the picnic pavilion parking lot at Myrie Big Island State Park and within minutes, two different birds came flying to me. One came into the car through the window and the other flew in and then retreated to sit on the side mirror briefly. They were American red starts and they were, uh, their minds were occupied elsewhere. Uh, Brenda Katasik of St. Peter seeing swan cygnets. Uh, Darwin Olson of Heartland, Gray Partridge. Kay and Mark Salk of Truman. Uh, Mark said Kay saw this hummingbird and sent a photo outside her window hanging upside down. We don't know if he's sleeping or dead. We're going to keep monitoring him. We found it odd and thought, what would Al do? Um, Mark, I've seen him go into torpor when it's cold in order to conserve energy. I don't think even a hummingbird would call this weather cold. So sadly, I, I fear that the bird was dead, and I did hear later from Mark say oh. it was a, a deceased hummingbird. Uh, Ken Nelson of Clark's Grove said barn swallows returned to the exact same nest that they had last year. And, yeah, they will use nests from previous years, but they avoid those that are infested heavily with mites or other parasites. And then they will add some new mud around the rim to kind of spruce up the place. Uh, Kimberly Emerson of Wyndham said, I found a little blue heron at the Medelia Marsh, also present as a snowy egret. And that uh, marsh, that wetland is about a mile south of Medelia, I would guess. Uh, Keith Radel, I talked to Keith from Faribault. He is a, uh, a bluebird guy. And I asked him, I said, how are the bluebird numbers doing this year? His are down 53% in the Ooh. box. And Mary Bailey, I talked to Mary, and she is a, a bluebirder, and she lives in Chatfield, and she says hers are about normal there. But I'm hearing from a lot of bluebirders, the numbers are way down, and it reminds us all here of 2012 was probably the best bluebird, the best luck folks had raising bluebirds ever here. It was just incredible. You couldn't... Uh, you couldn't fledge enough. They were just coming out of the boxes left and right. 2013, we had a terrible spring, and where I live here, there was no crop. 
people had cover crop. There were radishes, turnips, buckwheat, things like that. There was just no crop because of that miserable spring. That's what kind of happened to the population then. This time it's probably because of the winter storms in February south of us. Uh, Eric Anikstead of St. Peter said, where'd all the dragonflies come from? And <laughs> our dick thistles have returned right on schedule. Uh, thank you, Eric. I love seeing the dick thistles. They're the last of our migratory birds to arrive each year. Uh, the only bad part about that is they are the last of our migratory birds to arrive each year. And you say, man, did that much time go by already? The first dragonflies I see many years are the common green darners, which are both migratory and non-migratory. The latter populations die at the end of the season, and the nymphs overwinter. Migratory butterfly dragonflies can be found uh, on wing mid-April through mid-October. Some of them come back when there's a little snow on the ground, of course, here. Some meadowhawks and I believe black saddlebags will migrate, too. Uh, Scott King wrote a wonderful thing. He said, bright red bookmark placed on the first page of spring, the migrant dragonfly. Dragonflies develop as nymphs in rivers, streams, and lakes, and most take at least one year to develop from egg to adult. Some take two or three years. There's some Asian dragonflies that take seven years. Dragonflies undergo, undergo what we would call an incomplete metamorphosis. They transform from a nymph to an adult as a dragonfly. So it's, it's not com as complex as the more familiar that we see from a larva to a butterfly. And they're doing that now. And that's why we're seeing so many of them right now, Eric. Good to hear from you. Uh, Chad Hines saw a greater white-fronted goose, lesser scop. At the, uh, whoops, yeah. I hope I'm giving this to the right guy. I think I'm, I think it's a greater white fronted goose and a lesser scop at the Morgan Water Treatment Plant, and that's John Schladweiler. Okay. And that would be in Redwood County. Chad Hines saw Gadwell in Watanwan County, and also Green Winged Teal, White Rump, Sandpiper, Snowy Egret, and Little Blue Heron in that same county. Brian Smith saw a lesser scop south of Medelia. Bob Williams saw Wilson's phalarope in Watanwan County. Tom Bovers, chestnut-sided warbler, yellow-bellied flycatcher, and Bell's Vireo in, in Rice County. Brad Abendroth saw a peregrine falcon in Sibley County. Bob Williams saw a Dunlin, a gadwall, and a Wilson's phalarope in Steele County. David Neitzel found a Henslow Sparrow in Rice County. Brian Smith, a Scarlet Tanager in Watanwan County. I did not see a Scarlet Tanager in my yard this year. And I have them every year. So I think I just, uh, I blinked or I wasn't here when they were here. Uh, Bob Williams saw a ruddy turnstone in Sibley County. Sharon Holzer in Renville County, Renville County at the Mac Lake County Park saw Dunlin. She also saw in that county a brown a broad-winged hawk, a blue grosbeak. She found a magnolia warbler at Flandreau State Park in Brown County and lastly Kimberly Emerson in Brown County had a blue grosbeak and also a blue grosbeak in Red
Deadwood County. A listener said it looks like a bee but has a short antennae. What is it? You know, there's about, I think now they're kind of settled on around 450 bee species in Minnesota. And there's nearly 900 species of flower flies in North America. I don't know how many are in Minnesota, quite a number. And most of these flower flies have yellow and black stripes, and they're excellent mimics of bees and wasps. Why would you want to do that? Well, these flies cannot sting, but they look like something that will sting. So a predator will see that and say, you know, I'm going to look for something else maybe to eat before I think about eating that thing. So it does help them avoid predators. Uh, Were wood ducks nearly extinct? Yes, by the late 1800s to the early 1900s, extinction of the wood duck was imminent. Destruction of bottomland, hardwood forests, and market hunting were the two major factors that contributed to the species' decline. And the species was given a standing eight count, but in 1918, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act prohibited the hunting of wood ducks nationwide. Wood duck populations recovered and the seasons were reopened in 1941 and we have lots of wood ducks. And you have folks uh, wondering about ticks, Karen. Yeah, there's. I've heard reports of people saying there's been so many ticks. Now, I have not encountered any, but, you know, I'm usually on mowed grass or just in my landscape, so I really haven't. So I don't know if it's more people up north that have been reporting them, but some people are saying they're just terrible. And this is on some of my gardening and naturalist Facebook sites that I'm on. So I'm wondering if you're noticing it or is there any reason why there would be a lot of ticks and just thoughts about them? I think there's a lot of ticks every year. Um, I can't imagine this real hot weather is conducive for them to be very active, but I might be wrong on that. I have, yeah, I've been up north. I remember being out by um, Carrington, North Dakota, and we went up to a, oh, what's it called? It was called Hawk, Hawk something anywhere, where you could go up and just look forever. And I'd look in the grass there, and It wasn't, you know, we always say it was literally covered with ticks. Well, it wasn't literally covered, but it was in the ballpark. There were just ticks on every blade of grass coming up, so they were doing very, very well. We have, as most folks probably know, we have two most common ticks found uh, by humans, and the American dog tick, and most of us call that a wood tick. And then there's a black-legged tick. And that was uh, what a lot of people called deer ticks, and that's the one that carries Lyme disease. And there's also a third one It's less commonly seen. It's it's another dog tick, but it's a brown dog tick. So we have an American dog tick and the brown dog tick. But the two most common is the wood tick and the deer tick, the first two. And if you stay on the trails and avoid moving through grassy area just as you said karen you're gonna probably avoid them for the most part and then permethrin is good uh, for ticks i know a lot of folks that are uh, researchers and surveyors and things that put that around their socks and the uh, cuffs of their pants and things and um it's okay to look like a dork to <laughs> stuff your pant legs into your socks and just, you know, maybe 
change your clothing and shower when you get home so you don't go out walking or they'll think you who would that be peewee herman maybe or that uh oh there was a lawyer fell i think on the old saturday night live that maybe did that too but it's uh, the american dog tick and the black-legged tick now you'll uh, hear that from a lot of dnr and extension now instead of deer tick uh black-legged tick uh, the wood ticks are bigger, they're dark brown, and they have kind of a whitish or yellowish markings. The female ticks are all bigger than the males. Uh, adult female black-legged ticks are reddish-brown. They have black heads and uh, black legs. Uh, not a whole lot of uh, markings on there unless they, I think you see some if they've been well-fed. Some of the markings will show up. but. You know, I think ticks are the only ones that like ticks. Uh, I have uh, somebody sent me a video uh, from a very nice woman who is raising guineas, and she says they are um, great tick eaters. We hear possums are great tick eaters. I think possums eat mostly the ticks that get on them. So they pluck them off and eat them. I don't know that they go hunting for them. And I raised ticks for or I raised ticks for years. I did raise ticks for years, but I raised guinea fowl for years, and I had ticks too. So I don't know if mine were just the wrong kind of guineas, or if uh, we fed them too well. Who knows why the difference there? But I've heard that often, and love to hear from anybody that has guineas and say, man, they do eat a lot of ticks. That would be wonderful because I am like the guinea fowl's biggest fan. I just love those birds. Uh, we uh, we even ate one one year because oh. a neighbor ran over one in the yard with his pickup came store. He was one of those guys that was always a day late and a dollar short, so he was always in a hurry somewhere, and he ran over one. So he comes and knocks on the door and, and uh, says, here, my mom took it and cooked it up, and oh man, it was very good. Uh, I, I just good remember with, with ticks um, in on the farm. My dad sitting, we'd sit on the steps, you know, after we'd get done milking the cows, and sit with the dog and just pick the ticks off the ears, and the, sometimes even the cats, yeah. but not as much. For some reason, cats never got as many ticks, but the dogs just covered with them. And then we, then our job as kids was either to to take a rock and squish them or take a match. <laughs> and burn them so that was as kids i mean that was i guess one of our our uh, forms of entertainment on the farm uh, picking ticks off the dog and destroying them we uh we did the same and taking them off the cows too we pastured cattle and they would get out there and get ticks too and uh, you'd try to find as many as you could and get them off there and the dogs kind of liked it you know oh yeah yeah, they love the attention you know the other thing i remember my dad doing was and i never knew until recently what caused them there was these grubs they look like grubs that my dad would squeeze out of the cows and i think they're from bites from the bot fly and they, they would get like these little lumps on the cows and these giant larvae. And my dad would just have to squeeze really hard and they would kind of pop out of the hide of the cows. And it's just like, how in the world did something get in there? But now I know that was from a bot fly. And back then I, I had no idea what those things were. But that's the other entertainment on the farm as kids growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the, uh, the veterinarian coming out and uh, Mr. Thompson and sitting around in the barn talking with dad and they went over and just got one of them out of there and showed it to me and i was just so fascinated with that and with the, the larvae you the, mean of the bot fly yeah Ugh. yeah the 
the poor cow, I thought, that can't be comfortable having that, you know. And if you're a cow with a hoof, what do you do? You can't reach up there to get anything like that. Uh, that tail isn't uh, very effective for bot flies. It was good hitting little boys who were about the right yeah. height to get hit <laughs> in the face by one of those tails. But as far as getting rid of many flies, it just wasn't very good. But, yeah, and, and folks, these were big lumps on cows. They were. I mean, they they were just, just like you had like a big giant zit and you wanted to pop this pimple, but yep. you had to squeeze it out yep. this little hole. And, and I guess people can actually get those too, but I mean, you're probably more likely to discover it. But I, I saw some pictures as I was doing research on the bot fly of how they can bite people and you can get these actual larvae under your skin. And I thought, ew. Yeah, and um, I've seen photos of those too. And um, disgusting, I guess, would be the... Yeah the right thing they're sort of like i remember as a kid kids used to get carbuncles what's that and it's like uh i think it's damaged ganglia on your know, wrist or hand or something and then you get these big bumps oh yeah and uh, yeah and that's kind of what it looked like it was just oh it's just you but i just thought that was so interesting earl thompson dr earl thompson came out and he's still hanging around just one of the best guys on earth and he was the vet that came out, and, you know, he, um, man, he seemed to just care so much about cows and dogs and every kind of critter out, and people, too, because he looked at my sore throat once for dad said, take a look at the boy, he's been coughing. And, but he was just, uh, oh, you know, just a wonderful guy that just, uh, it was great being around him. Hey, Al, do you know why cats don't get as many ticks as dogs, or at least they never seem to? Because we had farm cats that were out just as much as, as the I mean, once in a while you'd find them, but never like you would with the dogs. I mean, they would still be running around the grass, and I don't know if dogs just did more in the areas where the ticks were. I, I have no idea. Maybe they're just not as tasty. Maybe. <laughs> or the but fur, yeah, I don't know. A, that's a great question why they don't, because we had uh, barn cats, and... We probably weren't so likely to look for ticks on us because we always had so many, and it was pretty easy to get more. Replacement cats were always somewhere waiting in line. But a good uh, cattle dog, that was uh, that was an investment there. That was something you tried to take the best care of because that was an employee on the farm. So I, I don't know, but I'm going to endeavor to find out. I want to thank everybody for sitting on the front porch with Karen and I. And I remember I saw the twins play. You know, they're having kind of a tough year this year. But I saw the twins play when I was a mere stripling, thanks to Luther League. We took a bus trip to Metropolitan Stadium. I'm sure it was the first time I'd ever been to the Twin Cities. And we got there, and we found out our seats were so high in the stands that on a clear day we probably could have seen the color of the outfield grass. But it was so wonderful being there. We got a free bun with every hot dog, but there was a cover charge for a program. Years later, I coached baseball teams. I started with that age group wherein all the fielders ran for any ball in play. You've all seen that. The little guys, the T-ballers and stuff, there's a ball hit behind second base. Everybody runs out there, including the catcher. They just all run out there to get that ball. Some players 
later, I moved up to a little bit older kids, and some players had the pleasure of riding to games in my 1961 Chevy Biscayne. It had a three-on-the-tree shift and a rust problem. Its floor was trying to corrode away. The trunk held bats, balls, scorebooks, and catcher's equipment that made a lot of noise as we drove down the bumpy roads. But that, that, we were headed home when the floor mat wiggled, I'm trying to find the right word, wiggled maybe, its way through the floor and embraced the exhaust pipe. This wasn't a good combination. To say it was a fire makes it sound worse than it was, but there was a fire. I pulled the car over and got the kids out immediately. The car had no extinguisher. It had no floor. It wasn't going to have an <laughs> extinguisher. It, I gathered a handful of gravel and tossed it on the flame and encouraged all my players to do the same. And they did because they'd been trained. Our home field sat downhill from the world in Heartland, and the infield was filled with rocks. They just washed down there. And a fellow coach, Gary Hansen, instituted a tradition wherein each player had to haul a couple of hands full of rocks from the field before practice could start. Well, once I was sure the car wouldn't burst into an inferno, I took the kids home. They agreed it was the best day they'd ever had in baseball. Remember, folks, heartless while we're driving past. Thanks for listening to me, and uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, Karen, as always, for your wonderful company. Well, thank you, Alan. Stay cool. Yeah, man, I should have said that. Everybody, I don't know how you do it. Uh, it oh, the out, you know, People who I, have I, to work outside, construction, farming, whatever, I feel for them. And, you know, stay hydrated, I guess, is the, 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 the key. I, yeah, I guess you just drink a lot and uh, find shade whenever possible. Yeah, well, Al, great to chat with you. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Thanks, Karen. All right, bye. bye-bye. Our good friend Al Bat. here is your history lesson for today. Welcome to MN90, Minnesota history in 90 seconds. December 30th, 1997. Michael Jordan got the news from a security guard. The basketball star was in Minneapolis with his team, the Chicago Bulls. They were playing the Minnesota Timberwolves and were ahead of the home team at halftime, as many had predicted. In the past seven years, the Bulls had won five championships, and the Wolves had yet to win even a single match against the talented, hard-playing Bulls. The guard told Jordan that his brother had called the Target Center switchboard. The news? Their mother was in the hospital. It took Jordan several minutes of his own telephone calls to find out that the whole thing had just been a terrible prank. But this wasn't a joke to Jordan, whose father had been murdered four years before. He'd been playing with the Bulls since 1984 and he still loved the game, but the craziness that came with his celebrity, that was getting beyond old. When Jordan returned to the game in the second half, he missed several shots before he got his rhythm back. And at the end of the night, it was the Timberwolves fan who was cheering his team's first win against the indomitable Chicago Bulls. After the 1997-98 season, Michael Jordan retired from the game. MN90 is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Online at mn90.org. It is 1033, 91 here on the campus at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Today's high, 95. Yes, it is definitely.